I'm James Milley. And I'm Alex Mito. And this is The Artist Business Plan, your favorite weekly business podcast for artist entrepreneurs, hosted by Superfine Art Fair. Hello, business artists and art entrepreneurs. Welcome back to The Artist Business Plan. My name is James Milley, and I am the managing partner and co-founder of Superfine Art Fair, the most widespread art fair for artists in the United States. As you may know, we are also a business resource for all things art, artists, and marketing art. We are here today with the one and only Marta Stoudinger. But before we jump in, I want to remind you all that you are now among over 3,000 unique listeners to this podcast every month, and you are tuning in from all over the world, over 64 countries and growing. We are so excited to keep growing with you all and providing support and guidance to artists and professionals around the world, but we need your help. Pause this episode, yes, pause it, (laughs) and take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your preferred listening platform that helps business-minded artists just like you find the artist business plan and benefit from our and our guests' amazing perspectives. All right, and with that, we are back to our scheduled programming. We are here today with Marta Stoudinger. Marta is an artist, art historian, and curator. In 2014, Marta birthed Latella Curatorial, then founded and now works as directed of the Latella Art Gallery in Washington, D.C., a multi-purpose space which serves as a curatorial office and client meeting space, artist studio, and is also regularly activated for art exhibitions. In May 2020, during the COVID-19 pandemic, Marta launched the GLB Memorial Fund for the Arts, which provides financial support to women-identifying artists and curators who reside in Washington, D.C., Maryland, or Virginia to further advance women-led contemporary art initiatives, which is something we can definitely get behind. Welcome to the show, Marta. Thank you for having me, James. I'm so excited to be here. Of course, and it's great to have you here as well. (laughs) Now, before we get started, Marta, I want to ask you something to help our audience get to know the real Marta. Okay. (laughs) What is the earliest memory that you have of art? And did you realize then that you would be dedicating your life to art and artists? On the top of my head, actually, I think it's more design-oriented You mentioned the GLB Memorial Fund for the Arts and GLB was my maternal grandmother and she, I credit to getting me into the arts. She had this really scrappy way about her of thrifting and specifically thrifting art and furniture and decorative items. And I just remember multiple times growing up, being in her home and being fascinated at how she curated you know, she was really good at like gallery walls and balancing gallery walls with items. So like this dynamicism that moved around her house, moved around the surfaces of dressers with really interesting items. And I just noticed and I know now looking back that I was constantly observing the balance of color, texture, asking her about the stories behind her finds and why she decided to live with them. And I think that really, now that I look back at it, was the introduction of just curiosity, curation, uh, looking, feeling, touching, all of the good stuff that that is really what I do today. Yeah, absolutely. And if any of you out there listening have the opportunity to see one of Marta's curations, you can definitely see this combination of like two-dimensional art, but then also very three-dimensional settings and (laughs) other objects combined. I'm getting kind of like a wunderkammer visual of (laughs) what your grandmother's home was like. But no, I, I love that. And I think that, you know, while oftentimes art is kind of shown on its own in a gallery setting or an art fair setting or something like that. Really ultimately perfect match for art is once it's combined with design and with uh, other objects. I think that, you know, even a $10,000 painting can be next to a $20 anything. Poster, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's the, the contrast that makes it interesting. 100%. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't even think about that. But it's true. Our our booth for Superfine was a very nice introduction to that. 
the first like major email thread I had with you, Marta, was like figuring out how to make like tapestries uh, come, you know, perpendicularly off the wall, um, which was very fun. And I loved it. I, I think secretly your booth was one of my favorites in that fair. So <laughs> um, we had a good time. You guys were great. And the whole fair was a blast. We really look forward to you coming back to DC and all, all of us being in person, you know, I know oh. in person. <laughs> well, we are confirmed for this fall. So, uh, I am very much hoping I get to see you in person again. Then yes. um, you always bring a smile to my face. So <laughs> it's very exciting. Excited to welcome you back to DC. Yes, I am super stoked. Well, anyway, uh, thank you so much for sharing that story, Marta. Um, it's it's always nice getting this little glimpse into uh, our guests' past so we can see where their inspiration stems from. Mm-hmm. And with that, let's dive into the questions that you do know about. <laughs> <laughs> so, Marta, first of all, could you tell us a little more about what inspired you to form Latela in its curatorial sense, the gallery and all of it combined? Yeah, the origin of Latella actually came from a project I was working on uh, when I was living in Italy. And I was there for about four years. I left around 2011. And I was working with a few friends who were all artists. And we were thinking about how to collectivize ourselves. And we were all from different points of the world and English was our common language, even though most of us spoke Italian. And we were considering, we never got it off the ground, but considering some kind of a journal where we were going to be exhibiting ourselves through that space and promoting ourselves. And we decided to call it the canvas. And I was really the only artist and art historian who had the knowledge to think about provenance and storytelling the way that art historians are kind of trained to look at art. And so I was kind of this curator of the group, which was my introduction into curating. And when I came back to DC and decided after working at the National Gallery of Art for a while that I really missed being on the ground collectively in community that was actually pulsing and living, I wanted to start something similar where there were essentially curatorial projects. And the idea of the name The Canvas was that we each kind of were adding to this medium, right? That this project was a medium that we all had a voice in, kind of like if we were all painting on a canvas. And so that made the most sense to kind of stem from what I knew. And Tela in Italian is canvas, la being the article. So it would be la tela, which just kind of made sense to jumble together. And I was like, yeah, that actually feels good. La tela. Like, you know, it's, it's a name. It's got a little bit of weight. It feels feminine. It's kind of helping me brand all of the things that I want to do, really working with women identifying artists and being this mixed space. And we called it a gallery for the first two years because we did have a location and we were doing exhibitions back to back to back and really wanted to make a name for ourselves in D.C., But the work that we've been doing the past three years has really shifted to what would be our consulting and curatorial projects. And so rebranded about two and a half years ago to Latella Curatorial, which is what we are today. (laughs) Yeah. And I I love the, the background on the name itself, which I didn't know. That's super cool that it comes from the canvas in Italian. I also love this whole concept that the project itself is your medium Something that I learned several years ago was, you know, that whole saying, the medium is the message, mm-hmm. you know, whether you're, you know, a printmaker or a painter or a sculptor, or in this case, the creator of a project, really, they're all a form that you're able to express something that you're trying to communicate with more people. And in this case, it was originally the space itself. And now it's the way that you're curating people together. And it's the art is almost the the artists themselves, which, uh, <laughs> you know, being the yeah. director of an art fair, I, uh, I can totally relate to that. Uh- <laughs> yeah, 100%. It's like, it's almost like your biggest performance art project <laughs> that just, yeah. you know, keeps going and keeps having all of these ripples, truly you're in the same boat in that, you know, you're organizing, whether it's a fair, whether it's an exhibition, whether it's a larger multi-pronged project, 
you know, we're in this situation where we're organizing the forms so that all of these people can come flow in the best way for them. And so there is an element of control in setting it up for success, but then you don't know what's going to happen on the other side of the performance, <laughs> in a way, outside Very of the container. That <laughs> yeah. What comes after the coming together? Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, I, I do almost still think that that relates to the act of making art in its like traditional understood sense as well. Yeah. You know, with my own art, I like to leave a certain level of removing control from myself. Like I like having randomized elements. And I think that a lot of artists do also try to include some of that in their own art. So it's, it's not like fully controlled and contrived yourself. It's like a combination of exactly what your vision is and kind of letting it go and seeing what happens. So I, I think that being a curator, you definitely get that as well. You're you're sort of setting the direction and the the tone of what's happening, but then you're you're leaving it up to the other players to also influence what what direction it goes in. One hundred percent. Cool. Awesome. Well, as an artist, but also a curator and previous gallery owner, now curatorial project space owner, let's call it. (laughs) (laughs) You must have a very interesting perspective on how to interact with artists, buyers, and so forth regarding your own work or those that you help with your consulting practice. So what do you think is the best way to go about interacting with and building relationships as all of your different hats. So that's, you know, for artists, for buyers, and then curators or, or gallerists, let's say. Yeah. I mean, I think this is something I'm always thinking about and how to refine. So I think the answer shifts as you continue to develop, whether that's developing your artist practice into new media or new price points or new relationships, you know, as soon as you figure out the interaction with the relationship you wanted, now you're navigating the next (laughs) uh, relationship, the next type of interaction, whether it be with other artists and collaborations, buyers, uh, curators, going from independent curators to institutional, there's always going to be a shift. And so when I think about that, I really think about this cyclical process of really becoming and becoming between your voice and the work that you produce and how that is then distributed, how that's communicated throughout all of the business arms. So it feels very holistic to me and it feels very energy centered, which is a lot of the curatorial and artistic voice that I use in my projects because I don't really see it another way. Whether you are creating art to meet with another artist and collaborate to uh, work with a curator or to connect to a buyer. Yes, there are all of these business tools out there to find your target audience and capture them, but you're not going to capture them if you're not making work that is authentic to you. So I I think that there's still always this central point of knowing yourself and being able to be so deep in your own experience that you are inviting and inspiring these other conduits to want to come into dialogue with you. And there's no easy way to know how to do that with any given uh, relationship, potential relationship, without feeling what that, what that essence actually like, actually feels like. I think that Art and making connections to me really is a seduction in that you're you're inviting people in to fall in love with with a concept that you're churning over. And to do that, you have to have a form of like mastery over it. And so it, to me, I think back to the law of attraction always with this question. I think if you're sitting deep in what you're doing, those people come to you and there's not this like, brain fog around how to find them. I have found that every time when, especially when I was beginning my business, that I reached out for contacts, I wasn't ever really connecting with the right people or I wasn't seen the way I wanted to be seen or my art wasn't understood the way I wanted it to be seen. And now in hindsight, I realize it's because my art wasn't really mature enough yet to, and the curatorial voice wasn't mature enough yet 
And the moment that it was, the right people started to find me. I know that sounds super cliche. You know, I'm curious if this is bringing up anything for you too, James, because it's something I'm constantly thinking about is when you actually are deep in purpose, there's this alignment that happens that you don't have to try hard anymore to get people to see you. And I'm not saying that there's not business strategy behind you, but you're not trying hard to get people to see you because all of the words, all of the brainstorming, all of the work to kind of chisel away at it finally falls into place. And so those connections happen in their their rightful timing. This does absolutely resonate with me, actually. I, I like that you use the term seduction. I, I haven't, you know, exactly referred to it that way before, but kind of seduction and authenticity. Authenticity is a kind of a recurring topic that we seem to keep facing again and again on the podcast here. I absolutely think that if your heart's not in it and, you know, you are not feeling true to, to what it is that you're doing, you're not going to be communicating, inviting people in the way that you are. And like you said, I mean, business strategies and tools, they're out there, they're available, and it's not that they're not helpful, but to completely rely on them. And there's going to be something that just doesn't quite click in terms of, you know, the people who you're trying to, to attract or to seduce. I definitely think that starting out with purpose, leading with authenticity, and then letting everything else fall into place. I, I have seen it time and again, that's just the, the better way to go. It's going to make your life easier. It's going to make everything fall into place a lot easier. Definitely with Superfine as well, and also with my own art practice. Anytime that I kind of feel like I'm just going along with the motions, things don't work. I, I hit walls. I'm not connecting with people the way that I'm hoping to. And then you kind of have to let go a little bit and not need what you're trying to get so much and just love what it is that you're doing. And then those things that you need uh, and now are just things that you want, they end up coming to you, it seems. But that doesn't mean that you're not doing work. It's more just the work is not so much of a push on other people. It's more of this internal thing that then ultimately, you know, you're, like you said, you're attracting people, you're seducing them without trying. I mean, it's... You brought up a good point about pushing onto other people, because I really see it as this spectrum. Like when I was an emerging artist and still trying to find my voice, my energy was also very projectile onto others. It was like, oh, you're doing something, notice me, because maybe you can give me an opportunity. And oh, you're doing something cool, notice me, Maybe you can give me an opportunity. And now, and I think we just do that because we're so deep in our passion and we can feel and see what we want to become, you know, in the future. (laughs) But we, you know, we're running, our feet are on the ground. And so it's really hard, especially for someone to take that advice, not, not even like come up with it on your own, to stop and pace yourself and just say, look, I'm really proud that I'm diving into my courage and like amping it all up to do this and put it out there. But at the same time, my work is probably shit right now in comparison to what I'm going to make in five years. And maybe I don't need to like (laughs) be the best at getting it out there right now because I can tell you the work I was making five years ago, I'm so glad that I don't have that all over Pinterest or like, you know, I've deleted things from my Instagram so many times because they play a purpose in building you, but they're actually, I think there's a time when you really want to poke your chest out and like show what you've made. And it probably shouldn't be in the first few years (laughs) because you're still like building, you know, you're still making a lot of messy mistakes, I think. And there's, there's beauty in that. I'm not saying to hide it, but I've noticed that the starting area is where there's a lot of the projecting before like the self-sitting happens. And then the more resilience over time of really sitting and, and making something feel concrete, the seduction occurs, right? So like, what is that relationship? That's what I see time and time again, the artists that I want to work to they're drawing me to them. Uh, they're not seeking me out. Whereas the artists seeking me out, honestly, the majority of them, it's like, you, you know, you still have a little bit of um, refinement that we need to see in your voice. And I think it's, 
a result of feeling like they need to reach out to make contacts when really we need to be making our work. Yeah. And one thing I would just clarify is as a as an artist that's starting out or is still kind of finding their voice or their own style, you should definitely be proud of whatever it is you're making, even if you don't feel like it's like ready for the public yet, or you don't feel like it's ready for an exhibition, you should be proud that you've made something and you're on that path. If you have work and you're really just like, I gotta sell this. I have to like, you know, have it in exhibitions now. Uh, and then if you are in an exhibition, something that I've heard so many times from people who visit Superfine or who visit other fairs or exhibitions, if they didn't have a good time, it was because, you know, they felt that too many artists seemed really desperate. And no one likes talking to an artist when it just seems like they want you to buy their art. If you know, you're know you having a conversation with someone about your own art and you're just excited about that, the sale will come. That's so true. Yeah, there's this difference between 100% support anybody who has the courage to create and, and find themselves through creation. That's like what it is. And then to share that on top of that is incredible. Not everybody can do that. It's incredible. But you're right. It's so funny. I did a workshop yesterday for the city of Alexandria. And on there, we were talking about social media do's and don'ts. And one of the first things I said is, don't bully people into buying your work. We hear about the starving artist and some of these romanticized ideas like Basquiat, right? Who was patroned and like kind of came up from homelessness into the artist that we know today. But people feel energy and they don't want to buy something that they're guilted into. They want to, they want to support you because they learn to care about you and the messaging through the art. And really they want, they're taking a piece of that expression or that experimentation that you're documenting. Mm -hmm. And one other thing that I would just mention since you, uh, since you brought up Basquiat and kind of like the path that really famous artists end up taking, you know, so many emerging artists out there, I think, look at artists like Kuhn's, Basquiat, any really famous artist, and they're like, that's what I want to do. Like, I want to do exactly what they want. Obviously, there's going to be at any period in any decade in the future, there's going to be like several dozen artists that end up taking that path. But there's hundreds of thousands, if not more artists on this planet who want to be, you know, making a living with their art, want to be able to continue making it in some type of productive manner that is fulfilling to them and is getting their work into people's homes so they can enjoy it as well. That's what we're all about. And what I like about that path is that it's not reserved for just a few dozen artists. It can be for hundreds of thousands of artists, seriously. I mean, if that other path is what you really want to pursue, go for it. I'm all for that. But to completely rely on it and sort of keep your art on pause until you kind of make that big break, I think that in the meantime, you should just be enjoying your art, sharing it with people, because that's really what it's all about. Well, and there's also a conversation about patronage that is usually left out of those comparisons taking Basquiat for example he had patrons who paid for studio space for him and dealt his work built up his name and received a high percentage because of that way into today so what I've also noticed is um, the idea to want to be that but also not want to give percentage to anyone and both do not exist in the same room. <laughs> <laughs> or if they do, it's just incredibly uncommon. <laughs> I, I think that we're on the same page. Someone who does get to that level, it's oftentimes because there's like an entire team mm -hmm. behind mm -hmm. them. <laughs> even, even someone like Basquiat, where it seems like it's this very raw story, it's very mm -hmm. coordinated. Just to keep that in mind as an artist, like, you know, what, it, what path is it that you want to be taking? And if you are wanting to go this, I don't know what you would call it, this this other path, the Basquiat path. 
just look at the entire in the entirety of what that involves. So I want to shift gears. We we were talking about DC before. You know that we at Superfine were huge fans of DC. We're the only full-scale art fair that happens in the city. Like we mentioned before, we're coming back this fall. So could you tell us a little more about some projects that you are working on to empower the local artists in the DMV area, the the DC, Maryland, Virginia area for people who are not local there? Yes. So um, one of the big projects that we're focusing on actually began last fall. We did a huge online exhibition on our Artsy throughout our website where we hosted a lot of Zooms um, on Instagram where we hosted Instagram takeovers. I mean, we had a Zoom or an Instagram takeover happen almost every day for six, eight weeks. Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah, it was insane. We had an online exhibition called Women in the Arts. Uh, that featured 102 women identifying artists from Virginia, Maryland, and Washington, D.C. And we did it during the time of the election. We The a- election actually happened dead smack in the middle of the eight weeks. And we decided to do that anyway because we live in a city that has so much narrative. I mean, everyone went around the globe is watching the Washington, D.C. stage and it's definitely really exciting to see so many women in leadership coming into, have already been in, but coming into Washington deeper into their roles and into their visibility. But for such a huge stage, the arts here is not understood. And we have so many museums as well. And yet our local art scene struggles to strive here, to be quite honest. You know, a lot of artists move out of DC. And so we want to be doing initiatives specifically to that. And since we are such a feminine identifying brand where women run, women operated, artists run, artists operated, we feel like we are part of this dynamic shift of redefining what supporting artists look like, redefining what matriarchal structures look like in the arts, which is mainly a patriarchal structure when we think about systems and shifting systems and how, like what rules we want to play by at the end of the day. And so Women in the Arts is an initiative that we are hoping to do every year. And I'm sure it will shift between in spaces, online, etc., depending on on that. So that's one thing that was last year, but we're already kind of strategizing for um, sometime this year. Uh, also, last year started the GLB Memorial Fund, and this year we are funding four projects. So really excited to announce very soon who those four grantees that we've selected and are beginning to work with are and what their projects will be. Then I would say the third initiative really is on our curatorial side. We're, we're working besides these big shows like Women in the Arts. We're going to work more behind the scenes. We're moving into how we can work with institutions. We have some proposals that are two or three years out that are exhibitions, larger exhibitions. And we want to be without having a full representing agency yet because we want to be very careful, again, of the control we take and the rules we play in this patriarchal art world. But pretty much being the representative that brings some of these women artists that have been creating here for years into really important collections. So kind of playing more of that behind the scenes role of advocacy. And then last, fourthly, I should also mention that we still have development projects going. I cannot name any yet, but we had a huge project last year at Avec on H, which is a residential apartment building on H Street. And a lot of the work we do is encouraging developers and architects who in a way are, well, they are participating in the gentrification of our city, which has a lot of gentrification that at the minimum, they should be spending their design dollars (laughs) on local art and placing money back into the local arts ecosystem. And we have a few projects coming up this year where we have been sourcing art by not just women identifying all types of artists from the area so that we can kind of connect them not just to being collected and in a space where community is going to be, but we're thinking organically about then how we 
engage the communities with the art, hold the developers and their property management teams accountable to really know and care about the provenance they're living with. And obviously the press that comes around those stories, which we're hoping is a seed, an example that all of these gentrifiers start to consider as, you know, the culture in this city needs platforms. And those are the ways that we see that we can do our work to help all of that grow uh, here in the city and also outside of the city for representational purpose. I love all of those. Those are (laughs) such incredible projects that you're working on, creating opportunities for local artists and supporting them. I lived in Miami for two years, and that's where we started Superfine. I would say it's kind of similar, more in the sense of just Art Basel and and that whole week that happens there Mm -hmm. being the major art focus point of the city. Mm -hmm. But in DC, I mean, there's so many like hugely important, you know, art museums that are, you know, considered like the the top in the, the country. There's this challenge where, you know, when you have something that's so national or even international in a city where there are local artists as well, they can sometimes be overlooked. Or if there is someone who is being represented, it's like just a couple artists out of hundreds or thousands of artists who are being really serious about their careers. And that was the same thing that we saw in Miami. There are so many incredible artists in Miami and some crazily small fraction of them actually end up being represented by galleries at the art fairs that happen during Miami Art Week. It's really unfortunate because that it interrupts the business in uh, the city for that week. Uh, so people are not shopping locally either. Uh, it's just they're, they're flying in and sort of ignoring the city itself. That's sort of what I'm sensing. Yeah, I mean, I, I care about it a lot in the sense that people come from all over their, the world to see DC and its arts. And it's really this hub of a few blocks downtown. And that's not the real DC. And we're seeing that now too, with, you know, everything that's happened this summer with the protests and how, how different and what the culture of the city actually is, is not depicted in all of these movies and cop shows and FBI, whatever. And then political like facing news is really just a few blocks. And that's what the global art world experiences of this place as well. When really the culture is so, so deep, just even a few blocks away. And it's so vast and there's a lot of color here in every sense of the word. It's so vibrant and we want to see ourselves on the map. I mean, I'm I'm so tired of getting these emails from hyperallergic that say, you know, LA, 10 thing, 10 art things to see this week, New York, 20 gallery yeah. openings this weekend. <laughs> it's like, what about DC? We're literally these are the people who are breathing and living and moving around town while all of the nation's politics are happening. We're the ones who are stopping in traffic for an hour when a motorcade goes by. Like, there's a pulse here that's part of the narrative that the global art world continues to just not pay attention to, quite frankly. I know. It's it's so true. And it, it really is disappointing. I mean, as, as much as I do love our New York and LA shows, our DC show, and then, you know, we're, we're um, expanding to uh, Seattle this summer. I get really excited about those because there isn't as much attention as there really should be in those cities. Um, so it's, it's really an opportunity to kind of the same way that you are like highlight artists from around the area who normally don't have dozens of opportunities at their fingertips. Um, it's so great that you guys are doing that too. I mean, we were all so excited to see super fine come to us because you know, the only hope that we've had for art shows up until then was pop-ups, you know? So again, within the thread of our culture, not really needing to last. And I know Superfine is still a fair that exists within a certain amount of days, but the fact that it's a larger umbrella that's choosing our city, I think, and, and, you know, pre-pandemic wanting to be consistent in doing that. Yeah, the consistent thread is a placemaker. Yeah, exactly. And if you look at it at a glance of an art fair also seems like a pop up. It's this thing that happens every year. So it's, it'd be like calling a holiday like, you know, Christmas, Hanukkah, Halloween or something a a pop up. It's like, it's this thing that people know about, 
expect and look forward to. And it then becomes part of the city. And so, yes, I, I totally agree with you there. Um, and, it, and it grows on itself because of that too, I think. Yes. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, in DC specifically, our you know second fair that we had there, it felt like a continuation of the first one, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Marta, w- what would you say are your three top tips uh, for artists who are you know looking to sell higher price works or get into a solo show? Any of these things like finding their target audience and growing their base for their their art. What are some tips that you have for artists who are looking to take their art career to the next level? One of the things that I'm seeing during the pandemic that I think a lot of people are not considering is contextualizing yourself within other conversations, but in a genuine way. So for example, if and not to everyone, right? Being selective. So If there's a curator that you want to work with, go to the next few talks that they're hosting on Zoom about their work and comment in the chat or maybe ask a question at the end and don't do it in the way that uh, everybody's criticizing on Clubhouse, like (laughs) just finding a way to like have your voice in there, but not really say anything like let it be genuine, wait until it comes up, eventually something's going to come up where you actually do have something really critically interesting to express or add to the conversation. And you'll over time, they'll start to notice you, right? And I've done that. I've no I've found artists based on, you know, all those zooms we did for women in the arts, some people kept coming in and had really interesting things to say in the chat. And after the third or fourth Zoom, I'm like, wait a, wait a second, who is this James? You know, like, who is that person? And you do start to notice them. And if they're saying things that feel authentic and feel aligned, that's when my radar as a curator kind of goes off into wanting to look into your work way more so than if I receive an email that's like, oh, another thing I need to open when I'm trying to get through email for the deliverables I have that day. But I've noticed for myself as well as a as an artist, I'm now working on shows with curators that I didn't even, yeah, one day I wanted to work with them, but it, they weren't on this like pitch list of mine, but I was genuinely interested in a conversation that they were hosting and went and then couldn't help myself but add in the be in the chat because I was just so aligned with everything they were saying. Then that turned into them inviting conversation and wanting to do a Zoom studio visit with me. So I think that actually there's an opportunity here with the pandemic to really get into some of those conversations organically. I would totally agree with that. And that's actually something that a lot of the other guests that we've had on the podcast sort of had the same sentiment um, with similar questions, you know, whether it's other gallerists or arts editors of, you know, major publications, really just being genuine with the way that you approach someone and maybe don't approach them with a pitch off the bat. Mm-hmm incorporate yourself with what it is that they care about. So like you said, if, if you're having a, a, a virtual talk for us, we're hosting a podcast. I mean, these are things that anytime we're sitting down and doing this, this is an hour of time. It's significant to us. And someone like an, an artist who's reaching out, showing interest in this thing that we really care about, that's going to make a much bigger impact than someone who's emailing. And they're one of like a dozen artists that have emailed you that day. And you're just it's in the middle of like some other promotions and newsletters you've gotten. And, you know, you're you're trying to just like clear your inbox so you can think again. Well, one, I don't think a lot of artists realize that independent art consultants and curators are juggling like 50 projects at once. So it's not that we don't want to meet new artists. We always want to meet new artists, but there's a certain amount of like energetic space that you have to explore new versus finalize what's already in progress and working. And I think if an artist thinks about it like that, then they realize 
that their process works very similar, right? You don't want to move on to learning about 10 new media when you need to finish this series in front of you to at least get that out somewhere, right? Get that exhibited somewhere before you go on to learning about resin for the first time, as well as <laughs> casting and bronze, as well as you know, the next. And I, and I think we, at least I work very similarly, that it's not that I'm not curious, is that I'm, I'm at capacity and I need to put my head down and kind of churn through some of the work already in front of me. And I think this also goes back to what gallery openings, you know, it can relate to in-person events as well. Like you don't go to a gallery opening and go right up to the artist and like give them your business card and say, you should check out my work and do my, do a show for me next. Right. Like you hear what they have to say. Maybe you get close to them, you know, at the line for drinks and say, I really like what you said, but it's probably going to be a few times that you see that person in person before you're talking about your work. And that makes them feel comfortable. It's good to just say hello, introduce yourself if, you know, you have the opportunity to do so. And then save that introduction for if you'd like to work with that gallerist or that curator or that art fair director, you can approach them in a way where it feels like a match for what it is that they have planned next. So Marta, switching gears, in your artist statement, you focus on the importance of incorporating movement and stillness into your work. I feel that this brings incredible balance to you and your work. And so my question for you is, what is the advice that you have for art entrepreneurs out there to bring that balance of moving and also stillness into their own practice? Yeah, I feel like without saying that, we've touched on this throughout the conversation yes. <laughs> from you know the first example of curating and having this like di- dynamic movement. I mean, when I'm looking at curating a wall, I want my eye to move, but also then be still on certain pieces, right? Like it really, and also we've talked about artist and connection making outreach and when to be sitting in yourself versus in movement with, you know, projects and interactions, etc. I feel that at the end of the day, the more that we create in the studio and kind of put our head down, we can get lost in our work, which is really beautiful. But we need to keep making while simultaneously stepping back to let the artwork really express itself to us. Sometimes it's a few months after creating something that we can fully contextualize it. And I think that the balance of being deep into it, deep into the movement and the generative process of creating requires, you know, when I see so many artists making so much work and such beautiful work, the ones who are excelling are the ones who also have that administrative uh, academic practice to them. They can look at their work and depict it and revamp their artist statement, apply to grants, uh, apply to funding, propose to shows. There's a lot of academia in there that is really still. And I think that also parallels healthier living in the sense that we need to move to to regenerate energy, but we also need to be still to to center, right? And so I don't think one exists without the other. And I think any art practice could be stuck if you're too far on one end and not moving in the other. So I definitely try to incorporate both, I think, holistically in in every way in that I work in the arts, whether it be business or my own work or my own self-care, really. I think they're all intertwined for sure. And it kind of reminds me of something that I read in the book that I'm currently reading right now. You know, if you're someone who you spend all of your time at home inside, it might be really imperative for you to get out there, go do something, go to a, go for a walk or like go travel or or something that is opposite of what you're doing. But then conversely, if you're always on the go, if you're, if you're never at home, it might actually be good for you to stay at home, sit and read a book, something like that. And really just having that balance. So I, I, I totally agree. If you're an artist that is working on new work in the studio and you're not giving yourself that, that chance to 
uh, focusing on, on the other parts of your career, but also your life that are going to make it more balanced and overall more what you're looking for. You know, it might mean that you should focus on applying for grants or focus on advertising your art or whatever it might be that uh, you need to do to get where you where you want and are hoping to go. But then conversely, if you're spending all of your time applying for grants and you're never making new work, for you, what you might need to do is get back in the studio or, you know, or again, read a book. I don't know why I keep suggesting that, but (laughs) read a book that inspires you and, you know, is going to inform the art that you make. And yeah, just figure out that balance because all of them influence each other and help yourself rise to what you're trying to achieve. I agree. And if you cannot, there are a few artists that only want to produce, right? They don't want to be in the admin part Mm -hmm. of grants or promotion or anything. And that's okay. But know that your practice needs that balance. So then just hire someone who's going to do your taxes and your (laughs) accounting, you know, just don't neglect the balance in your practice, but maybe the stillness comes somewhere else in your personal life, not through your practice. And that's okay too. Right. For you as an individual, it might be that to create that balance, you need to go out there and hire the person that'll do the taxes for you. It doesn't mean that you necessarily have to do the taxes yourself, but like you said, Marta, don't neglect it. Mm -hmm. And then besides admin tasks like grants and taxes and all these things, just also Maybe meditating is something that you need to do. Maybe mm-hmm. go for a walk, spend time with your pet uh, is something I'm always an advocate for. Uh, but what a, It's a big heart chakra release. Yeah, to be with- <laughs> exactly. Like just creating that balance that don't just like focus on really any one thing in your life is something I would highly recommend. Is there one more word of advice that you'd like to share with any artists out there who are building their art business? Yeah, I would say invest in yourself. I I think it's better for artists to have full-time jobs or side hustles to be able to put money back into their business, especially in the first four or five years. I don't think that's anything to be ashamed of. I know that sometimes there's a pull in where you dedicate your energy and your time, but if art is truly the path or any other path, you have to invest in yourself. This You only have one life, as cliche as that sounds. And you want to be able to have the means to shift and to grow and to deepen when that feeling calls upon you. And if that's where anyone is right now, you'll know when the time is to jump. But don't limit your ability to grow especially because of funds, um, find the way to invest in yourself and you can keep tweaking what that looks like so that you can keep growing. Yeah, 100%. And I mean, I think anyone who is listening to this podcast is probably looking to grow their art career. So I think that that's such a strong sentiment to be walking away with. Even if you're starting out small, invest something in yourself as an artist because you obviously care about it. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to an artist podcast. Even if it's $150 the first month and you use that towards the things that are going to get you one step closer to where you want to be with your art career. And then that second month, maybe you can make it $300 and then you can make it $500 and and you can go from there. So even if you're starting small, invest in yourself as an artist don't feel guilty about doing it because it's a good thing. (laughs) I know so many artists uh, feel this sense of guilt at putting any time or energy or money into their art. I mean, it's really, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. And if you know, you don't feel that sense of support for yourself, do just do. You said time. And I think that's so true. It's not just investing the finances, but we, we do a lot of one-on-one and, and course coaching with artists. And one of the main things I see is artists who are in some kind of relationship or, or with their group of friends where they feel guilted to spend their free time with these other people when really all they want to do is their art. And I, I know that feeling. It's like a soul-crushing, like, torture. Because it's, not you, it's not that you don't want to be with those people. It's just, like, you you have this other energy that's just, like, closing in on you and you need to move through it. And that also is investment because when that builds up, 
that's not good for anyone. And you hurt yourself the most when you deny your space, really. If, if, if artist therapy for you, don't deny that. That's an investment as well, that time and energy. I'm so glad you said that because it's one of the main things I see is people feeling that they cannot, you know, the same way that people feel that they cannot make the time out for self-care, mm-hmm. even more so on top of that, this guilt of taking the time out to create. Absolutely. Again, it is a balance, like you shouldn't totally be blowing off your friends or, you know, not spending any time with your romantic partner to, you know, just be making your art all the time. But at the same time, if you have this gnawing feeling and you're not dedicating any time for your art, take some time for your art. It you is gotta do it. <laughs> it is. Um, and then your friends will thank you later because you'll be a more pleasant person because you won't be uh you know, holding a, a secret grudge on the inside that you're not making art because of them. So Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's what it is. I think that's a great last word of advice to close out the show. <laughs> so to all of you business artists out there, Marta has been here dropping advice bombs here today, left and right. And you're going to want to go back and take notes on this podcast or take a look at our show notes And if you do want to connect with Marta for a consultation, you'll definitely want to give her a shout. You can follow her at at Marta Stoutinger, and you can also follow LaTayla at LaTayla Curatorial on Instagram, or you can visit www.martastoutinger.com and www.latelacuratorial.com to listen to the podcast and find more ways to connect with and work with Marta to up your selling game. And as always, remember that we are at Superfine Art Fair on Instagram. And if you want to give us a quick hello or learn more about how to apply for an exhibit at one of our upcoming fairs around the United States, just drop us a line at artistsmakingmoney at superfine.world. We love listening to what you have to say. It's so inspiring. Thank you. Again, that is artistsmakingmoney at superfine.world. And if you've been loving this podcast, once again, please share and write a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen to podcasts. It really helps us and it helps other artist entrepreneurs like yourself find out about the podcast. And lastly, as always, uh, I'd like to end the show by sharing a quick quote with you all. And the quote is from Robert H. Schuler. And the quote is, problems are not stop signs, they are guidelines. Marta, it has been such a pleasure having you with us. Thank you. Thank you, James. Thank you so much. Of course. Everyone have an awesome rest of your day. And remember to stay on top of your artist business plan, get out there and make it happen. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Artist Business Plan, a weekly business podcast for artist entrepreneurs brought to you by Superfine Art Fair. Hosted by Superfine CEO Alex Mito and co-founder slash professional artist James Milley, join us and leaders in the art, marketing, and business arenas each week for tips, tricks, and value bombs designed to help you thrive and sell more art. For more information on applying to Superfine Art Fair, as well as recordings of this and all of our past podcasts, just visit www.superfine.world. We love to hear what you have to say, so follow us on Instagram at superfineartfair and shoot us a message to let us know you're listening. Looking for a more personal connection or want to exhibit at an upcoming fair? Shoot us an email at artistsmakingmoney at superfine.world and we'll get right back to you. That's artistsmakingmoney at superfine.world.